Hey, welcome aboard. Welcome to this episode of Light 'em Up. We take a deep dive on leadership, the criminal justice system, and crime scene investigation. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, I am your host, Phil Rizzo, and I'm the principal owner of Rizzo's Protective Group. We are a high-risk security consulting firm headquartered out of Akron, Ohio. Today, we have the distinct pleasure to sit and talk with Paul Hugenberg III. Paul is a respected colleague of mine and a friend as well, and <laughs> I can call him Paulie without getting punched in the nose. <laughs> I can get away with it. <laughs> Paul is a pioneer and a true expert in the vast area of information technology security. Paul educates clients about the current threats and risk mitigation opportunities in cyberspace. He ensures compliance, and as a term of endearment, we refer to him as the Minister of Cyber. Cybersecurity. <laughs> and as a cyber defense professional, he is responsible for protecting the hardware and software of his clients from physical and cyber attacks, both from enemies foreign and domestic. And trust me when I tell you, the risk vectors are endless in scope. Paul has been kind enough to present at multiple ASIS chapter meetings. That's the American Society for Industrial Security, the largest professional security organization in the world that I oversaw as chairman of the organization and with consistency he delivers market-leading solutions that always exceed expectations his approach to cyber defense has evolved into a holistic one one that requires corporate-wide attention and participation he's crafted a winning formula for success that secret sauce includes cyber defense equals network defense plus data defense which means we all have a role to play across the organization in keeping things safe and secure. Paul's a lifelong IT security professional and has served in the capacity as executive officer for many institutions. Paul's a member of the NEO ISACA and for those who might not know, NEO refers to Northeastern Ohio. The NEO ISACA, it's an international professional association focused on IT governance and he's a former fellow at ICIT, the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology. And both organizations over see information system threats to business, personal information, and supervisory control and data acquisition. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Glad to be here. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. We got a lot of ground to cover, so let's dive right in, okay? Sure. For our listeners, Paul, share with us what are the basic goals of information security? Uh, so that's a fantastic question, and I'll tell you that over the years, the answer to that has kind of evolved, and it's been long and windy, but you know, at the end of the day, you can kind of knock everything down to one thing. Our role as cyber or information security professionals is to make sure that you're in business tomorrow. That's our role. That can mean a lot, and what you're in business for certainly defines how we do that, but at the end of the day, we need to make sure your doors are open tomorrow and aren't shut because of something that happens in our space. I see. So it's over the longevity, the long haul. It is. It yeah. is. Absolutely. So you can imagine for, uh, you know, a hospital, um, you know, you're dealing with patients and health. For a bank, you're dealing with financial statements and people's lives and records. For maybe a government entity, you're dealing with secrets. Yeah. All of those businesses have an objective that keeps their doors open, so to speak, sometimes profit, sometimes otherwise. And so we look at those reasons they're around and make sure there's nothing happening that's going to interrupt those reasons tomorrow as best we can. I see. I see. What is threat intelligence to piggyback along 
those same lines. What's threat intelligence and the importance of threat intelligence for mature security programs? So threat intelligence is, um, you know, so first off, it's a term that's come into favorability maybe over the last three, four years. And it's really driven by the fact that information security itself is just, it's not a static profession. You know, computers, software, hardware, how they talk and communicate, their abilities, changes all of the time, right? Today, we can set a refrigerator with a phone. Ten years ago, we didn't have a phone that could connect anything. So we're rapidly developing connectivity and communication in the space. So you can think of once you start connecting devices, you can do a lot of good things with them. Once you start connecting devices, some people may want to do bad things with them. Threat intelligence would be groups of organizations or feeds which try to collect as much information as they can and then make connections that maybe aren't necessarily apparent to most people and create a threat scenario and inform you of those. So if I'm sitting in a, say, a hospital, one of those threat assessment feeds or threat feeds may let us know that there's a certain variant of ransomware that's targeted to hospitals and we expect it to hit in the next 10 days. That's an example. Well, the only way that that is known is if there is a group of folks with eyes on glass, so to speak, that are kind of watching what's going on and then filtering that down into a decipherable message that they can send out to the audience and me being a member of that audience so I can help my clients. Okay, I see. Share with us what maybe C-suite executives and policymakers need to look for in order to better understand, for example, the wider threat landscape to identify the risk to the enterprise as a whole and changes that can be made in investments, for example, to the corporate culture or to insulate and protect the enterprise as a whole. You know, I have to say that historically executives or folks leading an organization have looked at IT and specifically IT security as a maybe a sub-discipline. It's a part of our organization, but it's not a part of how we plan. It's not a part of how we decipher risk, make decisions in the best view of what we're trying to accomplish. So what we suggest, and actually as a person performing work for clients, we start out every relationship with this suggestion, is defined for us, and sometimes it's the executive team actually for the first time defining it for themselves, but define for us why you're here. What's your purpose? Once we determine your purpose, the reason that your organization exists, then we can take a step back, and in that step back, we can start to decipher what puts that purpose at risk. What threats may exist in the lane you're operating in that will put that business purpose at risk? And it could be as easy as we're running a data center that's supporting 100 different customers, and we built that data center right in Tornado Alley. Our threat is that we suffer a loss because of a storm running through. Mm -hmm. Well, we we have to know that. And so that conversation, and there are 10 or 15 questions we ask along those lines that aren't IT-related at all, that start that awareness of where IT comes into play Mm -hmm. and what can happen in the IT space that really puts your organization kind of behind the eight ball. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So how do you communicate the true nature? And you touched a little bit on this in your answer, but how do you communicate the true nature and the extent of the vulnerabilities and those attack vectors that your clients are constantly exposed to in a way that they understand, accept, and proactively respond to mitigate that risk. So I'll give up a little bit of a secret sauce here. Um, and, and we do this because we think that our industry as a whole has some very positive steps forward it can take if we begin to kind of reiterate the same message and operate in the same fashion, driving information security up to a, to a key business risk as a whole. So what we do is go through those questions that I referenced a minute ago, get an idea of why you're in business, what puts that business at risk, 
And then we ask you questions like, what's your risk appetite? How much risk are you willing to take as a business to meet those objectives? Okay, the easiest allegory I can think of here is, if I'm a bank, do I lend to only A credit customers or do I lend all the way down to D credit customers? And what are the things that I do differently for D than I do for A? So there's a risk appetite. That risk appetite exists in the cybersecurity world as well. Do I want to take transactions over the internet? Do I want to give everybody in my organization a laptop and let them take them out into airports and take them on vacation, take them to the beach? Do I want to let non-employees access my email system to share information? I mean, there's a lot of decisions. What we do is ask what those decisions need to be based around in terms of risk. How risky are you? I see. Let, the, let the executive team define it. It's their business. What we do is interject if we think they are maybe needing a little bit of advice that they're taking too much risk. And of course, they can shoot us down. It's their organization, but we offer that injected advice. So once they tell us that, then we go through a risk assessment. So it's a lead exercise where we take our expertise, we kind of put it into a format and walk them through a facilitated exercise, which pulls information out of them that lets us then document what we see as the threats in the lane that they're driving in that they need to be aware of if they have controls in place over them already and if they have gaps. And the end of that ends up with a you know, set of recommendations or things we would like them to do to mitigate these gaps. But we then able to kind of contrast that to the start of the conversation where they said what their risk appetite was. And so now we have this agreement or this awareness and understanding between us as advisors and the executive team as the, as the owners of the organization about where they sit and what things they have to address. I see. I see. That makes perfect sense. So it's a mutual approach, and that, that is absolutely the best way to go forward. We believe so. What would be some of the names of names and types of cyber attacks that hackers use to compromise systems and networks that come to your mind when you hear the words cyber attack? And could you define a few of those for us? Sure. So um, the most uh, probably well-known would be uh, phishing. So phishing spelled with a PH instead of an F. So phishing would be uh, a malicious person. So it could be inside the organization, could be outside. Typically this happens through email, could be through a phone call, typically email, where a message is sent out and they just want to throw a bait in the line, right? They're literally acting like someone fishing off the bank and they don't know who they're going to catch, but they're just, whatever fish walks by, likes that bait, grabs the hook and boom, we got them. You see that today and I don't know, you get an email that says your Bank of America account's been locked out. Somebody has just authorized a transaction through PayPal and it looks really good. And you may say, I don't have a Bank of America account. Or you may say, well, I didn't order anything on PayPal. And, you know, you can go down a hundred examples of where emails can entice you into then clicking on something to respond. Those clicks are generally done by somebody who has um, administrative access. Not to go down too many rabbit holes, but they have the rights to load software on their computer. So when they click on that, the computer says, hey, you asked me to load something and you have the rights to do it. So I'm going to load it. Well, generally what it does when it loads is it starts to steal information, copies your address book and sends out, you know, a thousand more emails. Maybe it loads something that captures keystrokes so it knows your usernames and passwords. Maybe it copies the Windows cookies to know what websites you go to, things like that. Interesting. Wow. And we'll talk a little more uh, as we go forward about social engineering, and we'll probably touch a little bit more on the definition of phishing. I think that's going to come up. You know, you laid some good foundation for us uh, for the discussion that's going to come. Can you define these terms for our listeners? Uh, We're going to go through three quick terms, three shots to the head. Sure. Bing, bang, boom. (laughs) What is encryption? What is malware? and what is spyware? 
Well, very good. So encryption is basically taking a piece of information and making it private so that it can only be read by an intended audience. Encryption can help enforce integrity. We know the message did not change. Encryption can enforce privacy. Only the people that are intended to read it can. Encryption can also enforce authentication. I know that it came from the person that is sending it because it was encrypted by them. They used their key to encrypt it. So we can dig into that if you like later, but encryption makes things secret, proves who sent it, and makes sure that it didn't change. I see. Malware. Malware is a combined word. It's short for malicious software. So malware is anything that gets introduced into your environment that does something that you did not authorize it to do. Pretty straightforward. Delete files, locks a computer, maybe asks you to submit money to unlock your computer called ransomware. Malware is malicious software. Does things you don't want it to do. Spyware is, by definition, malware. It's doing something that you don't authorize, and that is listening to what's going on in the environment and reporting it back to somebody else. So when you see news stories of a data breach and reading it, you see this happened six months ago. And you go, how in the world could a breach occur six months ago and we just find out about it now? Yeah. Or how could they tell me that a breach occurred over this nine-month period? Is it a never-ending breach? Did it happen just nonstop? Well, the answer is yes. Somebody installed malware. A component of that was likely spyware, which just listened for a while, figured out what you were doing, and then it activated or was activated and began to do its malicious deeds, take information out, encrypt data, whatever it was intended to do. So spyware listens and then it reports back to somebody. I see. Okay. You know, before we talked about how uh, cyber never rests. <laughs> <laughs> it's like rust, you know, it never rests for, for our cars in northeastern Ohio. <laughs> um, that's right, that's right. With cybersecurity and cyber information security in the news so much daily, why do you think only about 14% of small businesses are prepared for a cyber attack? A lot of our listeners are small business uh, owners, so why do you think that is the way it is? Well, I think it's really kind of two reasons. And that 14% number fluctuates depending on the source, sometimes lower, which is really scary. Two reasons why we see that. So the first is a reference back to how we started. If I'm running a Main Street shop, have I considered that there could be an email that gets clicked that shuts me down tomorrow? Is it even in my vision, right? I've spent this money, maybe it's my life savings. You know, I pulled money on my 401k. I, I, I've got this business that I bought and I got customers and I got stock on the shelves and I'm excited, right? And then I want to go do my QuickBooks and I get an email that looks like it's coming from my accountant and I click on it and boom, all of a sudden, all my computers are locked and I get this kind of old age war games style graphic, right? You know, looking me in the face that says, we've encrypted all your information. If you want it back, send us, you know, two Bitcoins, send us one Bitcoin, send us $500. Well, I'm shut down. All my stuff's gone. Most organizations don't look at the likelihood of them being subject to a cyber attack, right? So they haven't sat down, done that risk assessment to start. Anytime I deal with a customer, we always do a risk assessment. Always. First thing we do. Because we want to know what you've already done. We want to know if there's things we got to look at. We want to understand you. When you do a risk assessment, and small businesses typically don't do that risk assessment. Right. The second reason, and probably the most important and really the scariest for me, is if you drive down Main Street of your town. Nine out of 10 customers, or nine out of 10 businesses, I'm sorry, are small businesses. There's there's a few big guys in town, but, but man, everybody is a coffee shop or a hardware store, a tool and die shop. They got third generation. They're small businesses. They, they run your community. The average small business has less than $50,000 of liquidity, which means their ability to write a check today is capped at about 50 grand. That's average. Some are way higher. Some are, you know, some don't have anything. 50 grand is the average. The average loss from a 
cybersecurity event. So that email I clicked, it turned all my computers into a blue screen, made me file an insurance claim, recover my data, hire someone like me to come in and help fix it, is roughly in the $117,000 range for a small business. And you say, well, how does that business with 50 grand pay 117? They don't. They shut down. So the stats that you read about how many are prepared or unprepared, the stats that you read about how quickly or, or how slowly, how long it takes to find uh, an incident, the stats you read that say two out of every three small businesses that suffer a data incident will go out of business within six months, that's why. Wow. It's a liquidity event. And people have never really, I guess historically, said, hey, a data breach is a financial event. They think of, you know, the guy with the mask on coming in and stealing the money out of the vault. <laughs> you know, the person setting their building on fire, you know, and they lose their physical assets. And they haven't stepped back to say, the biggest asset I have, and factually, the largest, fastest growing, most valuable asset in commercial business today is data. And if you don't look at that, if you don't protect it, you may as well not have a lock on your front door. And since you're not looking at that, you don't carry enough insurance, you don't have enough liquidity, you save, you know, a couple thousand dollars to not have a risk assessment, and now you got $117,000 debt looking at you in the eye, and you shut down, wow. right? So that's the end. That's that's really, you, know, you got the risk assessment stuff up front, what are we dealing with? But tangibly, the, the reason that 14% are unprepared is they haven't gone through that exercise, and they don't even know that they're one click away in an email, which they click on 500 times a day, right? Emails just ubiquitous how we communicate that single avenue can shut you down well, and that really is an eye-opening conversation absolutely absolutely along the same lines let's talk about passwords in order to protect sure. yourself you know when we walk into many of our clients facilities my team sees passwords in, in little black books on mm -hmm. the, on the desks by the machines and in files on <laughs> on the computers I mean we see passwords oh that doesn't happen <laughs> you're <laughs> lying that doesn't happen <laughs> I mean really we see passwords that are the same everywhere across the enterprise and we rarely see use of two-factor authentication on email, healthcare, and financial accounts. So how long should our passwords be? And then let's talk about afterwards, what is two-step authentication and should this be used on all company logins and accounts? So great question. So I'll let a little cat out the back here. So if we could get rid of email and passwords, our lives would be a lot easier because those are the two things that cause us the most grief, right? Every click on an email and it causes all these things to occur. And then the second is passwords. So I'm with you. I can't tell you how many times we've walked into a place and done a risk assessment. We start turning over keyboards and there's a password on it. You know, in some places where this may be the first time that they've asked to kind of become aware of what the, you know, threats and, and, and risk landscape is on the IT side. So think of like maybe a doctor's office with 20 people and they've never had an assessment done before. So they ask you to come in. You might find, you know, sticky notes sitting right on the wall with a username and password. You might find the entire office uses one account, right? Yeah. Everybody logs in with the same thing. Yeah. It's really an area where those become what we will call the bread and butter controls that if you can get control of them, you can mitigate a significant amount of risk. And so in plain English, if I have passwords that are longer than eight characters, the odds of something breaking them go way down, okay? Mm -hmm. If I have a four-character password, it can be broken in the time it takes for me to you know, hit a keystroke because there's only so many you know, combinations of four characters and technology can do that really quick. Well, eight characters, can't technology figure that out really quick? Sure, unless you make those eight characters a bit more strong than just say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, where it's just numbers. Mathematically, there's a maximum amount of eight character digits that you can put in any combination. 
information and software can certainly figure that out pretty quick. Absolutely. So let's let's mix numbers and letters. Let's take some of those letters and do with them that we can't do with numbers, and that is distinguish between uppercase and lowercase, right? An eight is always an eight, but a lowercase I is different than a capital I from a technology standpoint and the ones and zeros that make it up. Why don't we put in a special character? I can put a pound sign in, an exclamation point, an ampersand. So if you look at your available context with passwords, you have basically four things that you can have. Numbers, uppercase, lowercase, and special characters. By definition, three of those four things and a password that is at least eight characters long is considered to be strong. Okay, so just create a password that's got three of those four things and make it longer than eight characters you have a strong password. Does that mean that it can't be broken? Absolutely not, but it makes it a lot harder. And if somebody wants to break it, they're intending to and they have the resources behind it to go after it. I see. That makes sense. Yeah. So we always encourage that. Now, what's the best thing that you can do with passwords? Like the best thing in the world you can do with passwords. So one is don't use them. Use passphrases. So passphrases would be like a sentence, right? Uh, my name is Phil Rizzo and I'm performing an interview right now with Paulie. Right. That's a long sentence. Okay. <laughs> well, that's really hard to break, and especially if you put an exclamation point in it, especially if you change the A's to at's, right? You can make it weird, but make a sentence. That's called a passphrase. That's really hard to break. And since they're so hard to break, we don't need to change them so often. Since we don't need to change them so often, we probably don't need to write them down as much, right? You can see it kind of getting better. Yes. The other thing that you can do, since some systems today don't accept passphrases, you know, they have limitations on length, is use a password tool. And there are examples of those. I'll name a couple, not by any type of uh, endorsement, but just we see them. LastPass is one. Mm -hmm. Duo is one. Microsoft Authenticator. Google Authenticator. So these are tools that will create really complex passwords for you automatically. You never see them or know them, but they store them. And when you go to, uh, you know, log into something, they pop up and pre-fill it for you. Right? And so you've got this assistant, so to speak, that's helping you make strong passwords and manage them for you. And then you don't have to manage, you know, the hundreds of passwords that are a part of your day. So passwords would be three to four to make them strong. If you have the ability to use a passphrase on a password, and if you can't use a passphrase, then use a password assistant like LastPass Duo or Google Authenticator to help control that for you. And then you don't have to write them down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those, uh, that's great advice. Where could our listeners go if they wanted to familiarize themselves with more common cyber scam tactics? How could they educate themselves? Is there a website maybe that they can go to? Sure. So there are some educational websites maintained by kind of quasi-government entities, nonprofits. IDtheft.com uh, is a place that you can go to and that will kind of identify how most of us interact with computers and how most of us suffer the problems with them. If you are corporation, there are going to be some very specific things that you can go to and, you know, be happy to kind of offer some of those to folks if they need them. But, you know, your banking industry is going to have a peer industry group that is going to have their own sources for threat intelligence or threat feeds or information. But you and I sitting in our home, mm -hmm. IDtheft.com is probably a really good one to go to. You can also go to um, identitytheft.com. Uh, you can go to fdic.gov and search for identity theft in the search bar. And you're going to find not only reference materials, but some really plain English descriptions of what you may encounter just using your computer every day at home and how to protect yourself from them. And then maybe some of the things that you ought to be doing anyways to identify if something has gone wrong, like reconciling your bank statement, checking your credit account, things like that. Oh, that's fantastic. We say here we enlighten, educate, and empower, and uh, that information is golden.
That's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about a recent Twitter hack. We hear all the time about hacks. This was hacked. That was hacked. There was a recent Twitter hack that involved Jeff Bezos, uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and other high-value targets were hacked. If those HVTs, if those high-value targets are susceptible, aren't we not more susceptible to an attack than anyone? And how can someone so young penetrate these defenses of what were supposedly and what are supposedly Silicon Valley's most sophisticated technology companies. Well, so I think you're referring to the 17-year-old who took over the accounts of those high-value targets, right? Bezos, Obama, um, I think Elon Musk was on the list. Yes. And then presented a kind of a false ad that says, hey, we're going to give back. And if you send me X amount of dollars, we're going to, in Bitcoin, we're going to contribute X amount of dollars back to whatever the cause is. Right. That gentleman was 17 years old. Wow. So first off, technology is the great equalizer. There is nothing different from the Twitter account housed on the application that runs Twitter for Jeff Bezos than there is for the Twitter account for Phil Rizzo or the Twitter account for Paul Hugenberg. On the computer system, it's exactly the same thing. It's just a series of ones and zeros that are placed in a specific spot called a user account, and that user account has rights to do something. Okay, and in case of Twitter, there's the right usually to post uh, a comment on a public space where people can read it. Fair enough? There's there's no distinguishing characteristics. The fact that it was Elon Musk is irrelevant, except that they're a high-value target, meaning that they carry something with them that other people are going to be attracted to. So you can think of it as Jeff Bezos is one of the richest people in the world. So if he says, I've got $1,000 on max and give back, you believe it. Okay. Well, this guy's got money. He can do that. It's a person that actively comes out and says, I'm involved in giving back in these non-profit, profitable and charitable ways, and, you know, and, and I believe in kind of equitable distribution of whatever. And so you see this post come across, you go, okay, they mean it, right? And so now you have a high value asset where the value is given by the trust you believe in the person posting. So I read the Jeff Bezos, I believe it's Jeff Bezos, I'm gonna react to Jeff Bezos. Does that make sense so far? Yes, it does. So we have this equalized opportunity where high value is based on what trust we place in the source that we're reading. Okay. That exercise is a fish. So we're just gonna write back and hit that comment that we talked about about 20 minutes ago. That's a fish, right? Somebody stood on the shore, they opened up their Twitter account, and they threw bait in the water, a tweet, and they waited to see who bit, right? Fish go by, it's somebody goes, oh, I'm going to send a thousand Bitcoin to this address. So they don't know who they're going to catch, they just know they're going to catch somebody, and they hopefully are going to catch a lot, and this guy cut a lot. Well, how did he do that? Well, he did that through uh, a real quick reference that I made earlier called social engineering. Mm -hmm. Social engineering is when somebody that is not supposed to gain access to something, so walking in the data center, walking into your vault room or your company, cash, getting access to an administrative account on a network, getting access to a system that has the username and passwords for everybody's Twitter account, including Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Barack Obama. The 17-year-old performed a task called a spear phishing campaign. So notice we have the word phishing in it at the same time. Spear phishing is like hunting a whale or if you can kind of think of, you know, have you ever seen somebody standing on a canoe with a big old spear and they throw it down the water to catch one fish and they're actually watching one fish swim. Right? right. So spear fishing is not throwing bait into the water and seeing who bites on it. Spear fishing is actually targeting a specific person and then sending out messages or using social engineering to, to, to access that person. Okay. So 
this 17-year-old through a spearfishing attack identified that his ultimate target was the system that would allow him to post tweets and name high-value targets to give his tweets integrity. So his spearfishing attacked a downstream employee at Twitter. He didn't attack the CEO of Twitter, Jack. He attacked a down-level employee who took his spearfishing and ran with it. So clicked on an email and opened up something he shouldn't have, took a phone call and gave away too much information. I'm not sure exactly how the spearfishing was actually compromised, but a particular individual was named, known, identified by Twitter as being spearfished. That person had access to a system. That system had all of the information that the person needed to access accounts and post tweets. So you can think of you know, a 17 year old who compromises theoretically some of the highest value targets from an integrity standpoint in the world. Yeah. posted on the most public social media platform in the world and gets people to donate over a million dollars in Bitcoin to people that they think they're sending it to, but they're really sending it to this kid in Tampa. And he did it through one thing, spearfishing. Wow. So how do you stop that? Like, you know, So that's how it happened. How do you stop it? Well, you stop it through employee training. You stop it through um, technology that doesn't allow certain emails to get through. Like it scans them and reads them and makes decisions about them and drops the bad ones, the good ones through. You do that through things like only somebody from this particular machine or this particular IP address can actually post on this account, right? And so Jeff Bezos may be so important, we're not going to let Jeff Bezos post unless we can verify that it's actually him, right? So you can put those controls in place, but why would you? It's because you've done a risk assessment or identified what is the riskiest threats to your environment and you put in controls to figure that out. So I'll guarantee you today that Twitter has different controls to prevent spear phishing and to allow people to post on blue checkmark accounts than they did a year ago i see for sure right sure. <laughs> absolutely um, that makes sense that absolutely makes sense? it does it does perfect sense now along those same lines if the nsc can be hacked i mean if the nsc can be hacked isn't our personal privacy and security under like a constant and ever-evolving threat from things like we've already talked malware phishing and and bulk data collection i mean if the best of the best the brightest of the brightest and the most capable the nsc can be hacked what about us, the little guy. Well, so it still comes down to, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, you are just so spot on right now, but it still comes down to the same thing. Technology is an equalizer. So technology doesn't care. It just cares if it's authorized. If you tell a computer to do something, it doesn't say, hey, Paul, did you mean to do this? It actually does a couple of things, check code, check authorization tables. Is this one and a zero in the right spot? You know, when I go check on it, if it is, I'm going to I'm gonna let it go, right? Because the computer doesn't interact with us. It operates based on a set of rules. And so if you combine that kind of ubiquitousness of communication, connectivity of devices, if you combine that with, you know computers will act based on are you authorized, and that authorized is a technical decision. Your challenge is merely understanding what you have to do to get that authorization. That is almost always compromising a person whose accounts have those rights. So you're not compromising a computer account, you're compromising a person, and that person's account is what you are using. And now, you may compromise an account that gives you access to a table of other accounts, right? So you can kind of go down this lateral movement through a network until you find the target that you're looking for. But once you do that, now you have access to the very definition of what the computer is going to say is authorized. So NSA, NSC, DOD, IRS was compromised, um, HHS was compromised, those all happen because somebody to click on an email. I mean, good gracious, it's really that easy. It's really that simple. So let me click on 
something you know that shouldn't happen. Wow. They let somebody in the door they shouldn't let in. Or you have a person who identifies something that they don't like, and it could be because they're malicious, or it could be because they're a whistleblower, and they begin to access information that they have the rights to see, but they don't have the rights to share, but they share it anyways. I see. Right? And then you start to say, okay. So if you take those things, how the computer authorizes, and then the person who can kind of make those things happen, and then you throw in one more thing, your data today, who is Phil Rizzo? Who is, you know, my neighbor? There are so many entities right now who you interact with for a purpose that is very different than what they're really in business for. So we could use an easy example like Facebook. Facebook, you and I use it to share pictures of our kids, mm -hmm. right? To kind of post our opinions and wax poetic about how political we are today, right? right. What Facebook's doing is they're tracking where you're at, the websites you went to, what you liked, what you didn't like, who your friends are, who your friend friends are. Facebook can tell you what your political affiliation is. It can tell you what food you like to buy. It can tell you when on your vacation. It can tell you the last thing that you bought. It can tell you where you ate your last meal at a restaurant. In the background of an application like a Facebook or a Twitter, even Google, is a collection of a bunch of activity. And that activity then is housed and then shared with partners in order to provide you more services. Okay? Yeah. So now you have all of this private information about you that a commercial company has with a vested interest in making money off of the data that they collect, okay? Mm -hmm. So now, I told Facebook it's okay for you to track my location. What I don't know is Facebook shared that with like 15 other people. Mm -hmm. Okay, and now there's marketing people that know where I went. All right, you go get in your car right now, Phil, and you want to go to the gas station, okay? So you get in your car, and if you're driving a car that is anywhere within, say, the last 10 years in terms of age, maybe 15 in some models, your car uh, is actually collecting data about you. If your car is new enough or it's got Bluetooth uh, for your phone or, say, XM radio, Sirius radio, mm -hmm. it's actually pinging to a satellite. If you have a Tesla, you can't drive that car if it's not pinging, right? So now you have this, this thing that you use every day, which is collecting even more information about you and sending it somewhere, okay? Yeah. You get in that car and drive down the street. You're going to pass just down your road where you live, probably a wireless router or signal with every house you go by, okay? Yeah. So now your technology, the phone on your pocket, your car if it's pinging, you know, the iPad that your son's playing with in the back seat, your wife's got a phone as well, the laptop that you're working on in your car, it's searching endlessly for connections. Is there a wireless connection here? Is there a wireless connection here? How do I connect? And so now it's pinging off of routers and equipment and personal houses that you're not even thinking it's pinging off of, okay? And so now there are people that I don't even do business with, never gave authorization, to do business with that my devices are communicating with just for connectivity purposes and now my movement's being tracked. So I drive off my street and I change cell phone towers. I get far enough away from the one that services me at my house and I move on to another street and I change towers. You don't see any of that problem today in cell phones. They handle that without even a blip. About 10 years ago, you probably saw like your service drop for a couple of seconds and then pick back up as it changed the tower. Now you don't. It just happens automatically. I see. Well, that tower has just collected your stuff, right? And so now you've got this information, you're just driving down the street, all you've done is get your car started, go down the street, and your whereabouts, what kind of devices you're using, where they're pinging, what your accounts are, those are all now being picked up by other people, okay? So now I hit the gas station, which was my purpose of going in the first place. I go to the gas station, and there's a camera on me. That camera today is digital. So now, I've got a digital camera that is capable of not only reading my face, it's capable of reading my license plate and then storing that in digitized format. I go up to the gas station, I put in my credit card. Well, now my credit card 
card is sending information. I scanned my Giant Eagle Advantage card to get 10 cents off my gas. And now Giant Eagle's got my information, where I was at, at what time, spending what amount, what day, what address. And now my information's sitting in another location. Now I leave that gas station, I go to Giant Eagle to buy my food. Giant Eagle knows what I buy. Technology today is getting so pervasive, but yet so smart that, and this is true, the people that you do the most business with, even from a commercial standpoint, Walmart, Target, Giant Eagle, whatever, they can tell whether or not a person is beginning to suffer from a medical condition and or something like pregnant before they do. Wow. Because of what people do just naturally that they don't think about that can be tossed against this either artificial intelligence layer or machine learning layer or just a data lake of information which keys off and goes, oh, because this person historically has bought in this fashion and we know it because they, we gave them 10 cents off the groceries and they gave us a card every time they did it, is now buying in this fashion. Something's changed. Yeah, well, what's changed? Well, what I'm going to do is send you an ad print a different coupon on the back of that receipt. I'm going to sell that information to Facebook to post an ad when you go online, okay? Now, take that and run down the conversation of the Alexa or the Echo that's sitting in your house or the phone that's listening, you know, when you talk to it, your Siri. You have all of your private information is now just everywhere. The, the, the horses out of the barn is the phrase that you should use, but it's the biggest horse you've ever seen running out of the biggest barn you've ever seen, and it's been gone for years. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. And the catch twenty two to this, so you know, really, it's going to pull us all together. In the United States, privacy is not a right. Okay. And what you have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You have the right to a fair vote. You have go through your rights. Okay. Right to buy property. You don't have a right to privacy, which is crazy. Right. I don't have a right to privacy. We don't. And the reason why is because the United States has built an economic system or an economic engine that has rivaled nobody in the world because of being able to market directly to people by knowing information about them that they unwillingly share when we give them value for something else. And we build a model out of that. Absolutely. So now you see, yeah, so now you see Greenwich Bliley come out and say, well, you got to keep financial stuff secret, right? Now we see HIPAA got to keep healthcare patient records secret. We see Europe saying privacy is a right. And if you're a European customer in the United States, that United States company has different responsibilities now for this European customer because we're going to sue you or fine you if you don't follow our rules. And that problem has taken our data and shared it everywhere on devices that are ubiquitous, right, meant to communicate with each other easily. And now we're trying to fight where is it all at. And you're trying to fight it in a number of places across many organizations you don't even know exist or where they exist or why they exist that are employing people that you don't know, you don't know how they hire them, you know what their background practices are, that are accessing your data and have the ability to share it. It's a mess. Absolutely. Did I, <laughs> did I kind of color that? Yeah, yeah. No, from soup to nuts. That's, uh, that's perfect. I mean, fascinating too. Excellent excellent job on that. That leads me right into my next question. Now, with all this bulk data collection that's going on, all these ad trackers that we're exposed to, you know, very few people take their digital lives as seriously as they should. I mean, you and I know that. Like, for example, when someone signs up for Facebook or TikTok or Instagram, etc., you know, the terms of service that pretty clearly in those TOSs, in those terms of service, they pretty much let us know that we're signing away the farm in order to use their platforms. I mean, do you think people actually read those terms of service? And is protecting privacy a losing game today? Is it a losing uh, proposition? Or how can we change the game, tipping the scales more in our favor? So, no, I don't think privacy is a losing game. I, I think with all things, there's a cycle. And, you know, from time to time, we swing one way uh, on an axis and then we have to swing back. We're rapidly getting to the point where we are seeing the 
inability to track and control all of this information that has been openly, widely, sometimes um, maliciously shared and either used for good, used for bad, used for evil, whatever, right? We've got all this information that's been up. There's a, there's a real push to help find a way to give people ownership of their digital identity, okay? So who is Paul Hugenberg on whatever thousands of computers I live on? My credit report, my doctor's office, the amount of information I gave to get a mortgage for my house is incredible, right? Who am I digitally? Up till now, we haven't had, again, some of it because privacy is not being a right, we haven't had ownership that we could affirmatively give authorization to a third party to own and use. We could call up and say, don't use our information, right? We could negatively uh, react. And then that corporation should be removing our stuff. However, if they use a backup system, our stuff's probably still on a backup system, right? If I access them on a website, my stuff is still sitting in an ISP somewhere, right? The route that it took to get to that end user. So it's become really hard to even kind of delete my stuff, okay? So we've got all of this progress that has taken us to a place where our stuff has, has really been left out there to hang. And now we're seeing a lot of investment to try to bring it back. The easiest example that I can give you is cryptocurrency, right? That was born out of a way to self-identify my ownership of an asset that nobody else could take from me unless I affirmatively gave them rights to it. So we're trying to get better. The, here's the rub. The rub is, forget that you didn't read the contract for Facebook, right? I mean, social media and stuff is designed literally to activate parts of your brain that respond to certain inputs and features, right? So Facebook, Twitter, social media in general has often been equated to almost a drug-like response to folks. I got to be on it. I got to be interacting. I got to check my Facebook. I got to get on Twitter. Yeah. You know, I need to see the picture. That response is a psychological response that has some physiological undertones that kind of give it some concreteness. So we have traditionally given up our rights in return for value. And that's what we do every time we say we want to join social media. I want the value of being able to see my high school friends and their kids. I want the value of being able to see my cousins grow up in Cleveland and I don't have a chance to see them. So I'm going to go to Facebook. What I don't know is that I've not subjected myself to that drug-like response if I'm not careful with that experience. So I didn't agree to that. There's no contractual awareness of that. That's wrong. Okay. So you're seeing this fight generally out of Washington, which is often mistargeted, but probably has good intentions that the commercial space has to kind of get invested in and figure out a way to give us that back. And you're seeing all of that feed coming in now, all that investment coming in now. To get back to the rub though, Phil, yeah. we've given away so much. So assume that tomorrow I have a solution that says I can own my digital identity and nobody can take it ever again. That's great going forward, but I have all this backwards problem. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if we've solved that yet. No, absolutely. That's a good question. That's a good question. It really is. Hey, you're listening to Light Em Up, and we take a deep dive on leadership, the criminal justice system, and crime scene investigation. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. And today, we are privileged to sit down with Paul Hugenberg III. He's a respected colleague and a friend of mine, and he's a pioneer as well and a true expert in the vast area of information technology security. Paul educates clients about the current threats and risk mitigation opportunities in cybersecurity, and he ensures compliance. And like we said earlier, as a term of endearment, we refer to him as the Minister of Cybersecurity. And as a cyber defense superhero, he is responsible for protecting the hardware and software of his clients from physical and cyber attacks from both enemies' foreign
foreign and domestic. With consistency, Paul delivers market-leading solutions that always exceed expectations, and his approach to cyber defense has evolved into a holistic one, one that requires corporate-wide attention and participation. He's crafted a winning formula for success, and that secret sauce includes cyber defense equals network defense plus data defense, which means we all have a role to play across the organization in maintaining cybersecurity. Paul's a lifetime IT security professional, a lifelong professional that has served in the capacity as an executive officer for many institutions. Paul's a member of the NEO ISACA, which is an international professional association focused on IT governance and a former fellow at ICIT, which stands for the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology. Both organizations oversee information system threats to business, personal information, and supervisory control and data acquisition. Paul, as we continue forward here, what do you do if these multiple privacy issues happen to be associated with your computer? For example, how would you promptly resolve them if you get a message on your computer that says your location is exposed? And we can go over these one by one. Your location is exposed, your address is visible, your connection isn't encrypted, and your internet activity isn't hidden. Well, I guess it probably depends on what you've been browsing on the internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what you want to do. Um, the, the answer to that is uh, is different between a commercial entity. This happens at work versus you are in your you know you're in your pajamas at home with your laptop on your lap and you're watching TV and you're just kind of doing your thing. Let's start with home first. So remember, the only way that another entity can actually send you that message or cause that message to appear is to have either ongoing access to your computer right now, an internet connection. You're on a website. They can see you. They send that message. Or they put something on there before, and they're not there now, but that message is intended to get you to do something, and it's probably, for lack of a better phrase, calling home that the message has been activated and this particular target is seeing it. Okay? And it legitimately happens that way. So the organizations that kind of do these things, they really are businesses. They have data centers. They have people they hire, and they just watch computers and see when these programs kind of activate, and they send out actively new emails and you know software packages try to target people so shut up Sh shut off your computer unplug it from the internet turn off the wireless if you have to go and plug your router right shut the communication down that's if you're at home it's going to stop any active threat that's occurring people coming in it's going to stop any egress or data trying to leave your laptop to go to some you know foreign target because the route's down internet's off okay that's the most important thing to do now the next step is i hope you know somebody that is good at computers or you've got the ability to kind of, you know, go through the phone book and find somebody to call, or they know someone like you or someone like me to say, hey, this just happened. You're going to end up having some sort of response that tries to fix that issue. And we can go into those if you like, but there'll be a response. I see. Uh, it's different if you're in a commercial, okay, you're at work. And that's because the liability is different, the assets are different. It's not just your stuff that's available now. It might be a series of customers. Imagine if this is a hospital. So in that event, there should be right now, so if you're listening to this podcast and you're responsible for IT at a commercial entity or you're worried about what to do if something should happen because you do something at work, there should be right now what's called an incident response plan. So an incident if something happened. Those messages you just asked me about, that's an incident. Doesn't mean it's a disaster yet. That's an incident. Well, what do we do? Do I shut my computer off? Do I call IT? Do I unplug it from the wall? Do 
I slam the laptop lid shut, right? What do I do? Do I hit the power button? Those things should be planned out, okay? And if they're not planned out, then your organization needs to plan them out. They need to sit down and go through a couple of discussions about what ifs and start to plan these things out. At the end of the day, there's still a route between your network, home or commercial, and the target that is either talking to you or receiving information from you. And you can always get rid of that connection. You can always cut it, okay? Mm -hmm. But in a commercial entity, it's much more of a planned process because I may unplug something that takes down my website and now my customers can't talk to me, right? I might unplug a machine that is doing some sort of processing right now that disrupts the business. So there is a planned response, an incident response that is absolutely necessary if this is a commercial entity. I hope that's helpful. There's just a lot of roads to go down, but you have a plan at work, you cut the cord at home. No, that makes perfect sense. It does. To touch on some of the same lines that you just uh, mentioned about, if we're talking about some trends in proprietary information loss, show, you know, they show that the exploitation of trusted relationships to be an increasing threat as well. And I think back to something President Ronald Reagan said uh, many years ago where he said the phrase trust but verify. And this was in reference to, I believe, the Soviet Union at the time. How do we verify without damaging the trust relationship with vendors, customers, subcontractors, and outsourced or third-party providers? How do we verify that relationship without offending? Well, so that's, a, that's a great question. And to be honest with you, it is one of the most important questions that you can begin to address. Okay, so go back to trust but verify. Let's say I'm at home. All right, so we're, we're going to break out the pajama at home exhibit versus at work exhibit again, okay? So I'm at home and I get an email and that email says your PayPal account has authorized whatever. Your Amazon account has been charged $62 for this transaction. And you go, hey honey, did I buy something off of Amazon? Did you buy something off of Amazon? Say no. Well, what do I do? Well, don't click on the message in that Amazon that says click here to verify open up the Amazon website, log into your account, and see if that order is there. If it's not there, then that email is false, and it's a fish. And whatever I do when I click on it is going to give my private information to somebody else, right? So this is called out of band. So that email is a band. Your phone is a band. Websites are a band. So go out of band to validate what just occurred. I got an email from J.P. Morgan Chase that say, thanks for that $100 payment. It's going to be deducted from your account tomorrow. And you go, I don't have a J.P. Morgan Chase account. Well, there are an immeasurable amount of people that are going to go, well, maybe I do. And they click on that, you know, and they compromise, even though they never had the account. There's some people that do have an account and they go, holy cow, this looks real. The logo's real. The words are real. Man, this looks great. Something happened to my account. I trust J.P. Morgan Chase. And they click on whatever's in that email. What they could do is open up their phone and go to the Chase app out of band. Log into the account, see if that message exists. They could also call Chase, pick up the phone, call them. Hey, I just got an email about this. Is it real? And so you have the ability to verify every single request for information or warning or alert or transaction that you may get in your course of a day. Phishing relies on the fact that people don't do the verification step. They just click. And they click because they trust where it came from, right? They trust the visual of where it came from. So it's really an event where the verification step is if something doesn't look right, it probably isn't, and verify it out of band. If this is happening at work, same response, verify it out of band, and make sure that at work, you're training your employees to identify these red flags. How do your employees know that this email is wrong? How do your employees know that the CEO didn't send an email that said, hey, I'm going to be uh, going out on business, I'll be back about 5.30, can you please leave the back door unlocked for me? Okay, so I leave and I leave the back door unlocked, somebody walks in, does whatever they got to do, the CEO never sent that email. Well, how do I know that? Well, is it legit? 
legitimate that the CEO who's been beating into your head how to run this business and listen to policies and procedures is going to send you an email to leave the door unlocked? Yeah. Right, right. So call the CEO. Hey, did you send me this email? Hey, look, I'm telling you this because not only have I seen it, you know, I'm, I'm not only a, I'm also a member and a customer, right? I've done these things. I've made mistakes. I've had an email come into me that, and that came from somebody that I thought was good. And you know what I did? I hit reply. You know, I said, I'm not clicking on that because it's bad. I'm going to ask if it's real. And I hit reply. Well, where does reply go? It goes right back to the person who sent me the bad thing in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. And the answer, yeah, it's me. All right, good. That's right. And I click on it and now I'm, I got a problem. So out of band becomes really important and trusting your gut becomes really important. Outside of that is where technology comes into play. Do I have anti-malware? We talked about malware earlier. Do I have anti-malware running on my computer to stop these things? So I clicked on the email. It tried to do something, but I have a software solution that says, hey, that doesn't look right. I'm going to shut it down. And although I made a mistake, it didn't go anywhere, right? Yeah. Antivirus did the same thing. Your router that lets you actually sit on the couch and talk to Facebook is sending a communication from you to you know the router that you got from your cable company or one you bought, and then it goes out to the internet. Well, your router has controls that you can put in place as well. If you're at a commercial entity, your IT shop is spending probably in the 5 to 10% of their entire budget on IT controls to help you if you make a mistake, right? And so depending on where these things occur, there are going to be layers of controls, hopefully in place, to prevent the bad from happening. But you as a user can do the most basic things, which are don't click on stuff you don't know. If your gut feels bad, don't answer it. Verify out of band and just don't click on stuff. Yeah. And that just solves so many problems. Yeah. Well, fascinating stuff, man. <laughs> hey, let our listeners know what helping others stay safe at work, home, and at play on the web, what kind of satisfaction has that provided you? So it's a great question. So we get a little bit out of maybe IT. So I mean, I certainly like the fact that, you know, for whatever purpose, I've had the advantage of collecting a set of special skills, right? The Liam Neeson stuff, a very special set of skills, and putting those to use in the market and helping people from making mistakes. And it feels good to be able to take that knowledge, kind of connect it in a way that we know how it functions and works and are able to communicate that to folks in an easy way where they can do their job better and easier, right? The longer answer is that I have a, a huge... Let's just say I got a bucket of pride I'm willing to fill up when I can drive down the road and point at the bank on the corner and know that that bank is more protected because I was there or somebody like me was there than if I wasn't. I know that the coffee shop on the corner of Maine is not worried about the money in their bank account being taken away because we've helped them either understand how to protect it or we've helped the bank understand what they need to do to protect that that coffee shop customer. Yeah, Those are things which are just just immensely satisfying. There is no doubt that small businesses run our economy. They do. There's also no doubt that small businesses require these large enterprise scale companies that service hundreds if not thousands of small businesses at once have to do things right so they don't put those small businesses at risk. So when I look out my window, my goal is to make sure that that coffee shop is in business tomorrow. Kind of go full circle to what you asked me about when we started this conversation. Why do I do what I do? What is cybersecurity? In order for me to make sure that coffee shop is in business tomorrow, I have to make sure that they know what to do. I have to make sure that the credit card processor, that they're collecting payments from you when you buy that, you know, cappuccino, that they're doing the right thing. Right. I have to make sure that the bank where they put their money in, that they're doing the right thing. We have to make sure that FedEx, when they're delivering their shipments, that they're doing the right thing. And then make that the doctor's office. I got to make sure that my mom or x-rays don't find their way on the internet. Right. I take tremendous satisfaction through the lens of what I call main street 
for doing what I do. And that is just a driver. That's just what drives me to do this uh, all the time. That's where my satisfaction comes from. Absolutely. I mean, what a purpose, you know. If you love what you do, you never work a single day in your life. That's fantastic, Paul. It really is. Very valuable, too. We need more cybersecurity professionals such as you. As we get ready to round third base and head for home, do you happen to have a, a favorite IT, like, Armageddon movie? Say, for example, War Games or maybe Black Hat, <laughs> Deep Web, or something along those lines? Is there any movies that you really like that are IT-centered? Well, I do, but I'm going to pull a politician's move on you. <laughs> you ask me a question, and I am not going to answer right away. I'm going to answer something that popped into my head Okay. that follows on the last comment that I said. Just so that you know, your audience knows, there are shortages in certain industries, right? Too many jobs, enough people to do them. Right. Uh, certain industries have that problem. In IT security, there is a 3 million job shortage of professionals to keep that coffee shop open. So just want to lay that out there. It is a bad and we are Sparta. <laughs> you know, we're fighting a big army uh, to get this done. And you know, I appreciate everybody that's in the industry that's helping us do it. And I appreciate my peers that share their secrets. But you got folks that are kind of looking, you know, to make some, you know, quick impact in their lives. We need help. All right, now to your question. <laughs> I'm a Matrix guy. Okay. I'm okay. a Matrix guy. All right. There is a real argument that Elon Musk made uh, a couple years back, and it is something along the lines of we may be living in a simulation now, and there's no way to prove otherwise, right? So if you kind of think about, well, holy cow, if, if everything's going on in my head, it's just like these electronic impulses. If somebody can access those electronic, electronic impulses, they can do something with them, right? And you go, hey, that is way out of whack. You are so far down the road, Paul. Well, let me tell you a couple secrets. So right now, Google is and has been experimenting with chips that can embed in your brain that will interpret your emotional response to ads before you know what your response is. That's pretty dangerous. Mm, it's also yeah. pretty exciting if you like to sell ads, <laughs> okay? Elon Musk, at the moment, is trying to connect your human brain, your human computer, to an external artificial computer like we normally see, you know, silicone, copper, plastic, metal, to enhance the operating system capacity of your mental of your mental state. That's already happening today. You can think of the physiological and psychological response to just looking at a Facebook site and interacting with social media. We have figured out a way to kind of disorient and reoperate as people and how people respond to us through how they think through technology. You can easily get to red pill, blue pill, and we'll see how far the rabbit hole goes. Matrix is it. I see. <laughs> That makes perfect sense. That's interesting. That really is. How do you envision that we could add more individuals of color to the IT security field as blacks and Hispanics are drastically underrepresented in positions such as computer programmer, information security analysis, uh, and database administrators, especially with the connectivity issue that we see in major metropolitan inner cities where a lot of schools have very poor or no internet connections? How can we kind of turn the tide a little bit for IT jobs? So I want to make sure we distinguish between maybe what I can speak to and what I can't. So I, I can't speak to, let's just say, any type of deliberate or systemic type of oppression over certain groups. What I can speak to is what type of activities are we doing as a community of humans together to try to solve the problem that you just said? Right. You have people like Elon Musk, who's launching Starlink satellites right now to try to connect dark spots, not relying on the government to do it. We're doing it. You have the exercise that Facebook and Amazon and Google attempted to do, and I don't have an update on it, of floating hot air balloons with hot spots that float over areas of the world that are dark in terms of internet connectivity right now. Mm -hmm. 
there's a massive amount of investment in bringing internet technology to as many places as possible. And some of the delay is simply a matter of scale. How do we get things everywhere? We're at the point now where most major metropolitan areas are hot. Um, we're at the point now, and we proved this through this COVID event where a lot of students now are sent home and maybe the home doesn't have internet. They could go to McDonald's or they could go to Panera. They go to the library and find a hotspot, right? We're doing a really good job of expanding wireless, and we don't often hear that enough, right? We hear there's places that can't get it. The reality of it is we're expanding internet at such a frantic pace that that problem is going to be short-lived. And where it becomes, let's just say, uneconomical to get hotspots out, you have some of the largest, wealthiest corporations in the world that are actively spending money and losing money at a frantic pace to extend that, okay? okay. So that's one. The second is, th this is an education moment. Within our uh, education system, how early are we exposing kids to technology? Is basic programming what we consider to be a 3R addition, reading, writing, arithmetic, let's add programming. The idea that we are not exposing every one of our students through public education, charter school education, homeschooling education, whatever, to interacting with technology and learning how to, to manipulate technology, to own it, to program it, to make it do what you want it to do, is a cardinal sin. There isn't anybody that I'm aware of that can, with a straight face, say that the future is not data. The future is not connect connectivity. What we call today the internet or internet of things, it's going to be something different when our kids are older. That's where the world's going. So if you want to take people that today are not exposed to it, you can solve the problem by introducing an entire generation of people to technology as early as possible in the education stream. That doesn't address the 40-year-old who needs it now, but that may be a problem that we just have to solve as it comes up. And when we find pockets of deficiencies, we try to attach capital or money or services of that pocket. But that is a short-term solution. The longer-term permanent solution is educating our children as early as possible on how technology works and how they interact with it and how they can control it. That is where we got to start, in my opinion. So. Absolutely. I agree 100%. We have a lot of work cut out for us. But you know what? This, uh, this country is capable of a lot of great things. So, I mean, everything you've said, Paul, it's been tremendously interesting, insightful, and we're grateful to you. We really are. Let me ask you this as we get ready to to close are there any sleepless nights for you and what if anything keeps you up at night regarding the health and security of the network or the networks that you are responsible for or is there nothing but peaceful and restful nights in the Hugenberg household are you sleeping well or are there things that are there things that keep you up at night as an IT expert well man there are days where I sleep better than others and a lot of that's driven by the last conversation I had with a customer right or the last event that we had to respond to or the last receptiveness of a report that we ran, you know, things like that. Um, sometimes it's a, it's a great night when someone renews and says, hey, we want more work from you and you just be really good. And there are nights where you're like, oh my goodness, you know, those are my goodnesses used to be for me, wow, you know, if the system goes down tonight, we're in trouble tomorrow. If this person calls off, I don't know what we're going to do. If the mail room gets, you know, broken into, we're going to have, you know, loss of this information and how do we respond to it? The reality of it is there is always an ability to respond to some of these things. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. It 
may not feel good. It may be stressful, but you're going to get through it, okay? And you're going to get through it easier if you have done the work up front, just like anything else. You know, your football team does better if they go through spring training. Sure. Uh, your baseball team goes better if go through spring training. If you run scrimmages before you play that first football game, you're going to do better in the real game. You know, so are you doing that preparatory work before the real event comes? There's a reason we send troops to basic training before we put them off to war. If you're doing that work, then the response, while it may be tough, undesirable, and unwanted, is going to be structured, deliberate, and you're going to get through it. What I'm concerned about now, what keeps me up at night now, is the ever-increasing uh, risk that information technology now has the ability to cause physical or harm to life. So it used to be physical security was a set of questions and tests and observations that we would do anytime we did a review that would fall up under the umbrella of IT security because that's where the data center was. That's where our main computer systems were. They were behind locked doors. And so it was our job to make sure those doors were locked and who had access to the keys and just kind of go down that physical security road. Even though it's not a technology problem, do we have fire extinguishers in a computer room was a test, okay? Mm -hmm. Go to today. There's a story in the newspaper about three weeks ago. The hospital suffered ransomware. So somebody clicked on an email that they should not have. That email downloaded ransomware, which blue screened or made unavailable the network systems of the hospital unless there was a payment or a ransom paid to the person submitting that malicious software, meaning that there weren't proper controls in place to stop malicious software from running on the network. It meant that there weren't backups that were already done and ready to restore so the hospital didn't have the ability to just wipe their drives and reload stuff. The immediate result of that was surgeries canceled. The immediate result of that was power unavailable. The immediate result of that was some patients died. Technology today has the ability because we are so connected to actually cause physical harm. Technology today is actually creating middleware or adaption pieces that you can hook into or plug into systems that were never designed to be remotely accessible and make them remotely accessible because that's the way we manage systems today. What does that mean? It means that the ballast system that is running the oil tanker that is 50 years old is running off of a system that may not be capable of having the right controls to keep people out of it. So if somebody can access that ballast system and deflate the ballast, the boat sinks. If somebody accesses the lock control systems on a dam, they can flood the town downstream, right? I mean, these are real events right now. If somebody could access the computer flight system on a commercial jet, they can take it down. Sure. If somebody today, and it has been proven through hack tests and older models, I doubt that it's so susceptible to new models, can access your electronic car and, and turn off the brakes, you're wrecked. So there's, there's this massive move to enjoy the benefits of IT by connecting things that were never connected before. And we're doing it at such a frantic pace again that sometimes security is the second thing we ask about, if we even ask about it at all, that puts human life at risk. So what I worry about at night are my customers that are operating in a space where their business objective affects life, a hospital, doctor's office, and they suffer a breach. That's what keeps me up at night. And so when I'm doing work for them, I'm not really worried about the length of their passwords. Although I'm going to make sure it's right, I'm worried if there's something that we don't see that leaves them exposed that can lead to a breach or an incident that causes harm. Does that make sense, Phil? It does. Makes perfect sense. Yep. Polly, we want to let you know that we are so grateful to you for your time, your talent, and your expertise. You'll always, always, always have a home here on our show on Light em Up. You are our IT security expert, and you're our go-to guy. <laughs> I just want to let you know, on behalf of our listeners, how, number one, informative 
this was. Holy smoke. And uh, even though everything you said was informative and educational, like we like it here on Light em Up, but uh, we do have to bring it to a close. But we could always schedule another another time to sit down and talk. But I want to let you know how grateful I am to you, Paul. Really grateful. Hey, well, thank you very much. I, I hope I lived up to the minister uh, title you gave earlier. <laughs> and that's, uh, ho- hopefully church went well. You covered a lot of great ground, really. The minister of cybersecurity. Well, Thanks so much again, and you're listening to Light Em Up. Thank you.